I will retire most proud that we had this moment where we were galvanized as academics together with a mission to change the way in which we interacted with students and to not be deterred by uh, the many you know, institutional forces that resist change. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. Okay, so some full disclosure here. I have some ulterior motives with this episode. Listeners know that one of the broad themes of this podcast is the future of higher education and how our institution must change to meet the demands of our time. Today's conversation is an inspiring case study of institutional change. I speak with the University of Montana Western Regents Professor of Geology, Rob Thomas. Rob tells the story of how he and some visionary colleagues transformed UM Western. In a time of crisis, UM Western had the courage to innovate and become the first public university in the United States to adopt the block scheduling system. Rob explains the wisdom of the block and why it was an especially good fit for Western. We also discuss the bumpy, nonlinear process of making that sort of change happen. It was not easy. This conversation was an inspiration, and I'm excited for you to learn about how UM Western saw opportunity in a crisis and did something about it right now. So we're here today with Professor Rob Thomas. Actually, I should say Regents Professor Rob Thomas. Rob, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me over. All the way in from Dillon. How was the drive this morning? Perfect. Nice. Uh, nice dry roads. No problems. So you're a professor of geology at University of Montana Western. I am. And what have you been there? Tw- uh, yeah. how, how long now? 93? Tw- I can't do the math that quickly. 26 years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, a lot has happened in that 26 years. But I'd like to get into a little bio for So you grew up in California. Yes. Went to college at Humboldt State. I did. And Went to a community college, actually. Yeah, so that was a question mm-hmm. I had, was it looked like you started out with an associate's degree. Yeah, I'm, I'm from a first-generation yeah. uh, college-bound family, uh, relatively low income. My dad worked at the plastic factory, and my mother was the lunch lady at the middle school. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to what we lovingly referred to as UCLA, the University of California by the Livermore Airport. Nice. <laughs> and uh, it was the local community college, uh, cows in the back 40. It was actually not unlike Dillon. And uh, it uh, was a great place to start. Um, Did that Was that kind of the... Like in high school, was college on your radar? Like, how were you sort of thinking about what was next after high school? Yeah, I think uh, my my folks always pushed education, even though they had not had that chance. But right. uh, the uh, I, I think that uh, it wasn't clear to me uh, how far I might go with education, and uh, I'd been working in construction and sure, yeah, uh, had a. Uh, fellow that I was working for that I think probably would have loved to have me come on and kind of take over the business and uh, that kind of thing. But uh, I caught the bug for learning uh, pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, a couple of natural sciences classes at the community college, passionate instructor, mm-hmm. you know, right, that motivated uh, people and 
uh, I caught that bug and decided I'm going to continue on, and that's why I went on up to Humboldt State once I could afford it. Sold a, sold a 65 Mustang uh, to pay my tuition oh, so I could go to school. Do you ever regret that? No. <laughs> nah, okay. Well, nah. well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it opened up a lot of doors. <laughs> it did. Yeah. Uh, we sold a car once for my wife to go to graduate school. Uh, sometimes I think I'd like to have that car back. But other times I think, you know, that master's degree has served her well. So. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Anyway, so you've had a few different experiences, went to Humboldt, and then yep. and then here was was uh, getting your master's here at the University of Montana, kind of your first Montana touch point. Yeah, I uh, I, I had no connections with Montana whatsoever. I'd gone to a national meeting of the Geological Society in Reno, and uh, I uh, ran across uh, the uh, uh, the infamous Don Winston, okay, uh, who was this wonderful uh, fellow that uh, was a geology professor, now retired uh, here at the U. And uh, Don was, you know, he's just a larger than life character. Um, uh, plays the banjo and uh, <laughs> says goddamn a lot. Yep, and, yep. Uh, just a, a real character. And uh, I, I can, I knew instantly when I met him at the meeting. I, I, I remember sitting down for a 15 minute con- conversation and about probably three hours later, oh, wow. uh, it was, you know, typical Don. Yep. It was like, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm uh, going to go to Missoula. And uh, it was uh, – I had low GRE scores, so I had a tough time getting in. But mm-hmm. I, I squeaked in and uh, I really caught the Montana bug and always wanted to come back. Sure. Did you go directly from your, your master's into a Ph.D. program? No, I uh, I, I really didn't uh, – I think that, you know, those of us that work in the profession, I think most people being honest uh, would say that – they never see that they could potentially actually get uh, a doctorate and become a college level instructor. Mm-hmm. I, I just didn't see that on my radar screen uh, as possible. So um, I took a year off and I worked. I had been working in the industry doing geotechnical consulting in okay. the San Francisco Bay, and uh, so I went and did fault and landslide hazard work mm-hmm. in the San Francisco area and. Uh, during that time, I really missed being in the thick of learning okay. uh, new things. And so I spent a lot of time applying to various grad programs. And my top choice was University of Washington. Mm-hmm. And I got in there, and uh, my advisor, uh, Jody Bourgeois, was the sole female uh, on the faculty of about right, 55. Right. This was in the late 80s, mid 80s, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, late 80s. Uh, sole female of a group of 50 plus males. And um, I learned a lot, not just from Jody as an incredible geologist, but as a female in a profession that was very male dominated and an environment that was male, you know, very male dominated. It was a great learning experience. And so why, why Vassar? That seems like a departure. <laughs> well, you sense. take the job you can get, right? Yeah, I, I'm so. familiar with that concept. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, was, so that's I where was, the job was. That's where the job was. I was finishing up, and uh, there was a uh, uh, two jobs in my sub-discipline in the mm-hmm. nation. One was south of the Mason-Dixon line, and the okay. other was Vassar. And uh, I, honestly, I... I uh, probably shouldn't have been selected for that vassar job there were there were actual 
uh, several female candidates who were way more qualified mm. than I was. But uh, although I'll not mention any names, the fellow that hired me, I think, was, a, you know, it, it was a good old boy thing. Yep. And uh, I got the job and uh, we had connections. He had had uh, interactions here at the U. Okay. Um, okay. And uh, we had some faculty connections. And he was a native of Washington State and knew Got people it. at the university yeah. there. And so it was uh, – that's what what happened. And I really liked uh, what Vassar stood for in terms of being a kind of a beacon of – women's education, uh-huh. uh, one of the early, one of the seven sisters and one of the early places that a woman could get an education on par with men at Yale and Princeton and Harvard, which were all uh, private mm-hmm. uh, or were all uh, male only. Right. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I thought very highly of Vassar. Uh, Poughkeepsie, New York was not uh, where I had envisioned not spending. a hotbed of geology. <laughs> you know, there was good geology there. It just wasn't. It's one of those things that you know, when you're in a tenure line job, you know that you've got that first kind of six or seven years yeah. to decide where you want to be. Mm-hmm. And I knew that uh, if I got tenured there, I'd probably never go. Right. And so when the opportunity came, I remember I was looking and I saw. You know, uh, a job at at what was then Western Montana College of the University of Montana. That's quite a name. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, they were hiring somebody to teach geography, geology, uh, and physical science. And that's uh, quite a portfolio, too. It is. It was literally still the four or five jobs. It was the normal school still. Uh, Okay. It was the teachers' college. And uh, not that there weren't teachers' colleges elsewhere. Yeah, but when you say the normal school, what do you what, what does that mean? Well, normal schools, of course, were the, they were the regional teachers' colleges oh, okay. to train okay. teachers. Uh, and uh, in the state of Montana, there were four original universities: uh, the uh, the land grant institution in Bozeman, the mm-hmm. university in Missoula. Uh, the uh, School of Mines in Butte, and the Normal School in Dillon. Okay, and uh, so it was founded in 1893, and it uh, was literally the last Normal School in America when I got there in '93. Uh, it was its hundredth year anniversary. Sheila Stearns came as the chancellor that mm-hmm. year, and uh, uh, we were literally, um, to my knowledge, the last remaining Normal School. In the United States, we literally had three degrees. We had elementary ed, secondary ed, and a uh, extended early childhood uh, education sure. program. That was it. Uh, we had no degrees in geology, no degrees in English, no degrees in business. So you were being brought in to teach people that would go into teaching kids science yeah. at a, at a- uh, elementary and high school level. Yeah, I was hired by the dean of uh, education there. Yeah, yeah. I was in the education department. We were all. So why'd in you the say yes to that? Department. Why'd you say yes to that job? I don't. Um, I I got I got uh, I had Lyme's disease when I was in oh. uh, Poughkeepsie. Yeah. Probably got bit by a tick there. Mm-hmm. Dutchess County was right next to uh, Lyme County, Connecticut. Um, so ground zero. It was ground zero, and. Uh, I don't know. I think I had an epiphany uh, that uh, life is short. And uh, if you, you know, I viewed Western as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was like, this is the last normal school in America and it needs to be reinvented. 
uh, because it wasn't going to make it. Um, you know, I, I, I had advisors, including Don uh, Winston, who were like, you, you know, I'm not going to write you a letter for that guy. Hey, why, why on earth would you go there? <laughs> That's it. Right? And so you're at this stage, early in your career, you're, start, you're already thinking, like, this is a place that could be transformed and I could be a part of that? Is yeah, it- I, I saw that, you know, at Vassar, I was going to be a cog in their 150-year-old sure. deal. And uh, at Western, I could be back in the West. Um, I could be in the mountains. I could be skiing. And I could also have a career at a place where maybe something interesting could be done. Mm. And uh, so in the interview process, one of the things also I noticed was, you know, there was a level of tension and, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, lack of uh, kind of sincerity as uh, as human beings, if you will, uh, at Vassar. And uh, when I arrived in the Butte Airport, which is where I flew in yeah. uh, for the job interview, uh, my colleague Steve Mock picked me up. He is a chemist. And uh, Steve was you know, more normal than anyone I was working. Yeah, no lack of sincerity <laughs> in Butte and, and, and that's in, in right. central Montana. Yeah, and yeah. I just thought, you know, uh, this is really what I want to do. I want to be in an environment where, uh, you know, Vassar was a bit like Camp Vassar. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very segregated from the Poughkeepsie uh, community. Right, right. And uh, everybody, it was very much like a... Um, Oh, uh, you know, like a, a prep school, uh, oh, yeah. a residential prep school environment. And uh, you kind of had to dedicate your life to the place lock, stock, and barrel in that way. Uh, little did I know I would dedicate myself to Western lock, stock, and barrel. But sure. it was different. It was my choice. And I was in an environment where, in particular in Dillon, um, you know, you really have no choice but to interact with people in the community. Mm-hmm. And by nature of the community, it's extremely mixed. You have a university and you have agencies like the Forest Service and the BLM, Great Harvest Spread, Patagonia, and Mm -hmm. so on. Big outlet. And and then they're mixed in with the ranch community and uh, all the sports systems that go with that. And and the fly fishing community Yeah, all the tourism, guiding, all of it. And so it's very mixed Mm -hmm. in, in many ways. I mean, it's dominantly, a, you know, a kind of typical rural conservative ranch town, but it's mixed enough that it, it's – I found it very interesting. Yeah. Uh, it was one of those places that you couldn't silo yourself uh, with people that thought like you did. You had no choice but to have your arguments well honed because if you were going to make them and you were going to make them publicly, you're likely to get challenged down at the coffee shop. Sure, people would engage. Yeah. <laughs> right, people right. would engage. And I, I, you know, people used to always ask me suspiciously, you know, how do you like living in Dillon? It was never, oh, how do you like living in Dillon? Right. It was always suspicious. And my answer to that was it's the most real place I'd ever lived. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That because makes good there's sense. the full spectrum of society and you have to engage with it. Mm-hmm. So arriving and early on having a vision that this place needs some sort of, of change, you were at the center of bringing this uh, idea to town that eventually became the Experience One program. Uh, I want to talk about this on a variety of dimensions. But first, like, let's talk about what Experience One is sure. in its current iteration 
Um, and how is it different than the way a, a university or college typically packages education? Yeah. In a nutshell, uh, I always like to say it's freedom from scheduling. Uh, that's how, at this <laughs> moment in my life, that sounds so sort of liberating. <laughs> well, scheduling drives us to teach in certain ways. Right. And so if you can have freedom from scheduling, you can really be more innovative with teaching. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it's a misnomer because there is never freedom from scheduling. You have to uh, – you know, I have to acknowledge that students have jobs and students are student athletes and that there are time frames I cannot work within uh, and I have to adjust. But – um, what I mean by that is uh, I had always, uh, you know, I like to tell this story. I had a, I had a faculty member uh, at Humboldt State, and uh, he used to always say that we should burn these buildings down and buy vans. Mm. And, uh, of course, what he meant by it was that uh, the best learning experience uh, for us, in particular in the geosciences, uh, were to get out get and, outside. you know, get on yeah, the rocks. And, that's right. And experience, you know, engage in authentic practice in the discipline, sure. right? So if, if you're in the school of education, you work with kids and teach kids. If you're in the business department, you know, maybe you work with local businesses. And, you already start a business, right? Yeah, in class. That's right, or start yeah, a business. Yeah, like Babson yeah. Has, has a program where they – Freshmen start right. a business. Absolutely. And most of those businesses are, are viable. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's so cool. And one of the barriers to uh, that is the 50-minute, three-day-a-week yeah, class. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, Which yeah. is, of course, designed for lecture. And uh, it goes way back to the training of priests. Uh, right. And, uh, yeah, people don't realize that lectures <laughs> from a time before the printing press, right? That's when right. Only, only one person had the book, so they had to read it to everybody. That's it, right? Yeah. And, and I'm the master of this information, right? And I'm going to tell you what's important about this. Yeah. It sounds very familiar, right, mm -hmm. to our modern lecture environment. And uh, to me, evolutionarily, we learned through experience, right? Somebody was like, well, you know, uh, uh, Joe ate that blueberry yesterday and died, so don't eat the blueberries. Right. Um, right. <laughs> and you know, and that person still got to pick the blueberry yeah, and eat it. The and then another person dies, and a yeah. few people die until finally somebody decides don't eat the blueberries. And uh, we learn experientially. You know, mm -hmm. um, uh, there's a great George Carlin quote out there uh, about how uh, you know if you tell people to not touch the paint, they have. Because it's right, wet, they right. have. If you tell people that the paint is wet, they have to touch it, <laughs> right? And uh, my goal has always been to get people to touch the paint, yeah, uh, to make them have that desire, that desire to want to touch the paint, to want to engage with the discipline, and so uh, to go back to how it works in nuts and bolts terms, uh, students take a single class for 18 instructional days. So it's consecutive a, weekends the whole thing? Nope. So it's three okay. it's three and a half weeks. Sure. Okay. Um 5 days a week. Uh and uh so it goes for um just a little shy of a month. Mm -hmm. uh, they finish on a Wednesday. They get what we call a block break where Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday yeah. is off for them. We faculty are of course grading and scrambling to get ready for the next block. 
and then uh, they show up on Monday and they start a new block. Okay. So um, I'm teaching and the students are taking one class at a time. Mm -hmm. And uh, the uh, the scheduling of the day is left up to the faculty member. Um, we have kind of evolved, maybe I'll call it devolved, into a system by which in the gen eds we decided that um, we needed to have a morning and an afternoon division of courses. And okay. So students go for three hours uh, uh, in some classes in the morning, say 8.15 to 11.15, and then some students do an afternoon block, um, if you will, and uh, they'll go from 12.15 to 3.15. But uh, they're only in one class, so and I'm only teaching one class. Got so, uh, but that is really pretty much, uh, at least in my department, and I'm in environmental sciences. In my department, we pretty much only adhere to that for the general education classes, the 100 level classes, mm -hmm. and even there, we play around with it and take students out for you know, four or five hours on Thursdays and Fridays to do extended field studies and, and, and so on. And this structure permeates the entire university. Yes. I mean, we'll get into this because the, the bigger – well, a big part of this conversation is going to be how on earth did you make this right. happen? <laughs> we'll plant a flag there, come back to it. But it seems in order for a structure like this to work, it, it has – everybody has to be bought in yes. and doing the same thing. Absolutely. Yeah, so um, – just structurally again, so everybody on campus is on the block system. Yeah. We do offer courses that run through the whole semester. Mm -hmm. They're called stringers. Uh, this all, of course, like all good ideas, stole it lock, stock, and barrel from Colorado College. Yeah, I mean, there's um, a number of private colleges around the country mm -hmm. that have been doing this. Evergreen, Prescott mm -hmm. College. Um, yep. And the folks I know that have gone to those colleges have had tremendous experiences, mm -hmm. swear by the system, mm -hmm. um, yet – uh, UM Western is the first public university to, to do this, right? That's correct, yes. We're the first public university to ever try to do this right. and, and to pull it off. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it it was in such an unlikely environment. I mean, no money, uh, a, a highly conservative environment. And I don't mean that in a political sense. I just sure, mean that. Sure, risk had, averse. Right? right. No change, right? Yeah. Change uh, – you know, rural, ranch, community, change is slow. Uh, big changes are not beneficial to, uh, the, you know, the um, success of business in that environment. Mm -hmm. And so they're skeptical of that. They're skeptical of outsiders uh, with new ideas, and uh, all of which is understandable. It's not a criticism. And uh, so that was a difficult environment to pull it off. Uh, but uh, I think... Uh, you know, to go into, you know, maybe driving mechanisms. Uh, the normal school wasn't a tenable model in 1993. I mean, teacher certification was available pretty yeah. much everywhere. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, a lot of substitutes. Yes. And so, you know, the, the normal school model actually went away in the 1930s when the state of Montana added uh, normal schools up on the High Line, mm -hmm. MSU Northern, what is today MSU Northern, and one in Billings, mm -hmm. what's today MSU Billings, which started out as normal schools. Uh, and so the the niche of being uh, the teacher's college uh, 
has been gone for Western for a very, very long time. Right. So uh, that was not a market niche. If you want to look at you know the university from a business perspective, that was not a tenable market niche. Uh, there were just too many other options. So there's, and we uh, were down to a very small number. Yeah, and so the university <laughs> knows it has a problem, an enrollment problem, a funding problem. Um, how aware is it of a need to change to deal with that problem? I'm just trying to understand the culture yeah. of, of the community at that moment. I don't. I think that the. I think that people knew. Uh, the, you know, there was a Save Our Campus committee in the Dillon community. Okay. So um, I heard from many people in the course of being you know, the great Satan of this thing and being the kind of visible activist for it. Uh, that, well, it ain't broke, don't fix it. And it was like, no, it's, it's broke. broke. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you guys have a Save Our Campus Committee. Yeah. Uh, there's a problem. And uh, it. Uh, so I think that people knew. Um, I'm certain my colleagues knew. Uh, you know, I know that. Uh, I think that uh, a lot of people thought if we just keep our heads down and aren't very visible, we'll be fine. But there was a fundamental change that occurred in 1993. We went to headcount-based funding in 1993 in the university okay. system. Yep. Prior to that, there had been a set amount of money that every campus was going to get. Mm -hmm. And as soon as it went to a headcount-based funding model, then it was counting, you know, seats. Yep. And if your numbers are low, you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. And so overnight. Uh, we were put in a position, in my view anyway, where we had better figure out a way to become relevant um, and to grow the numbers uh, to where it's sustainable. Right. And uh, I felt like, uh, you know, the things that um, we weren't going to be able to change, you can't change the culture of the environment that the institution is in. Um, it's in the community that it's in, and that's the way that is. Yep. Uh, you can make things look nice. You can, you know, add the beer and circus, and you can build some buildings, and you can uh, make a nice football stadium, and you can do these other, you know, things. Uh, but I was not convinced that those were things that resulted in sustainable growth and right. stability. Around the edges. Yes. Sort of. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah fancy amenities aren't going to do it. It's beer and circus, right? Plus, they're expensive. I they're mean, you can expensive. maybe find money to to pay for them for the short run, but but ultimately, if it doesn't lead to growth in revenue and students, yes, yeah, people aren't going to keep funding that stuff. Absolutely. So, to me, we had to be relevant academically. Yeah. Okay. And I looked at it and I thought to myself, well, our greatest. Uh, uh, negative is our small size mm -hmm. and our greatest positive is our small size mm, yep because we had small size well that's we, let's situate that so about yeah. 1500 students like what now what yeah so what was the at, size then uh, i think on campus if we had 600 students on campus wow, okay. we were we were doing pretty good so it got really small it was small and how large was the faculty 50 okay okay so small group yeah yep yeah there are there are Class A high schools that are larger. Right, right. <laughs> but that actually maybe contributes to understanding here's a moment where we can well, change. Our numbers are small. You know, I, I was at Vassar. I mean, people were paying, you know, 
$75,000 a year to get small class sizes. Right. And so, you know, a lot of it is, you know, artificial, right? Uh, we, We decide what is good and what is not as good in higher ed based on things that aren't very tangible and real sure. in a lot of ways, right? Um, somebody decides in a ranking that, you know, Harvard's the best or whatever. And it's like, yeah, is that really, is that really real, you know, yeah, educationally, all the things right? that administrators do to game the rankings, mm-hmm. and I shouldn't say game, but they decide, mm-hmm. like, you know, like in the business school world, like rankings are driven a lot by right. placements. So, yeah. Yeah. you know. The, the, the more elite schools only yep. admit people that they right. know they can place in certain yep. companies that sure. are important to those rankings. Yep. And yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of gaming of that. There stuff. is. And it's, I, you know, I, I can't deny that it, it's real and it's important. But uh, we were in no position to do anything about that at Western. Sure. So we, as far as I was concerned, it was really boiled down to, um, you know, the, the one thing that we could really do was we could – changed the way in which we educated. In fact, actually, uh, there were a couple of uh, moments, you know, those epiphanies uh, of what the right thing to do was going to be. One was uh, we found that as we started developing the liberal arts degree programs separate from ed, which is we did first, Mm -hmm. that was the first thing we did, that uh, good ideas got duplicated real quickly by other campuses. Okay. So that, uh, you know, in the system. Other campuses in the Montana University uh, oh, system. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and kind of the way it worked in those days was uh, uh, tech, tech was the, you know, the resource engineering school. Western was the education school. And Missoula and Bozeman could do whatever they wanted. A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, this is Joe Anderson. I am the CEO of Reflex Protect, and you're listening to A New Angle. And uh, <laughs> it, uh, we, we really weren't given a lot of freedom uh, to do what we wanted. So, you know, the idea of having a separate English degree, for sure. example, at Western, that, that we, wasn't possible. Uh, you know, to have a bachelor's degree in yeah. English. Stay, we, stay in your teaching lane. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What right. we did is we had a degree on the books that nobody ever used called the Bachelor's of Liberal Studies. Mm. And we used the secondary education coursework and we created a Bachelor's of Liberal Studies in Literature and Writing, Business and Communications, Environmental Sciences, uh, Fine Arts. And interdisciplinary social yeah, sciences. I'm, I'm familiar with the spirit did. of these workarounds. Uh huh. <laughs> That's what we did. Yeah. And uh, so, but good ideas were being co opted by others. And it hit me, you know, we've got to change the way in which we, it's not about what we offer, it's about how we offer it. We have got to change how it is that we offer the education. And because we were small, the thing we could do was to, engage students in authentic practice in the discipline. In other words, I can remember going to George Dennison and saying, what would you say if I told you that we were going to go on to the one class at a time model uh, like they use at Colorado College, and we will become the experiential learning college of the University of Montana system? And he looked at me and he said, you know, my son goes to Colorado College. Interesting. Okay. And I said, I didn't know that. 
And he said, yeah. And, he's, and then he paused, and in classic George fashion, he leaned in real close to me and violated my personal space. And he took his index <laughs> finger, and he poked me in the chest, and he said, you'll never pull it off at Western. And he poked me three times in the chest. <laughs> that, was, that was not saying it was a bad idea, though. That was just saying you won't get it done. Yeah. Right. And to his credit, I don't want to be bad-mouthing George, uh, he, George became our great champion and advocate, actually, but mm-hmm. we had to prove it to him. Sure. And it took years yeah. uh, of, of having to prove it. Um, but that was the driving mechanism behind it was we just couldn't be the normal school anymore. We were small. That was an advantage. And it's like, okay, let's take advantage of this. Why should we lecture to small classes we should take advantage of that small class size yeah. and get out and actually do stuff uh, with these students. And that was really kind of the birth of the idea of the block. And, you know, geoscientists, it, it was a no-brainer to me because we do field camp. Yeah, it seems very in line with the ethic of your discipline. Yeah. it's yeah. A, you know We had this month-long experience during the summer, which is this immersion experience yep. in the field. And everyone in the geosciences knows this is, you know, the seminal experience as an undergraduate. And, and, and we all – so I, it, it, we're just hardwired for this notion yeah. that if you can engage people in – Authentic practice and the discipline, uh, they it changes the game. It changes their interest level in the material. Um, if you can make the projects real, um, you can make it so that their commitment to it uh, really changes um, because they know that somebody else is going to look at it. Yeah. You know, I've always told people that we faculty are like surrogate parents, and uh, students will turn in junk. Uh, to us, but if they know that somebody outside of the institution is going to see it, sure, boom, yeah, yeah. does that change everything? And so, how do you get? <laughs> like, I can see this being a slam dunk, like you said, in in the geosciences or, or these disciplines yeah. where field immersion is part mm-hmm. of the ethic. But how do you get somebody who teaches English or yeah. math? That's funny. That English it, always comes up as yeah, the yeah. as the one. Uh, you know, I I um, the the English folks. Uh, are doing really interesting uh, and creative things with it. I think that uh, you know the the goal was uh, to provide that freedom from scheduling so that the faculty member could figure out how do I engage these students in this discipline. Sure. And uh, I mean, I probably shouldn't have said it, but I can remember at times you know, saying to people, if you can't engage them in some kind of authentic practice in the discipline, then you don't have a discipline. Yeah, yeah well put. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, cause, so I can see, yeah, from basically, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a means to a powerful end, right? Like if you, can, if you remove these constraints of schedule and, and you assume that you, hey, give me a set of students that are solely focused yeah. on what they're going to be doing yeah. with you. Like that, that's a powerful premise. Yeah. I so, think my bottom line is, I mean, I have a hard time answering specifics about what my colleagues do with their time in some of these other areas yeah. because you know, we trusted and respected our colleagues to do the right thing with the time. So, so how did this <laughs> Which movement – like, how did you get? I could, I could see how, like, you're starting mm-hmm. around the halls, talking to some colleagues, right. and this, you know, how does the idea kind of start to gain some momentum? Well, I think uh, you know, it's really started with George coming, uh, George Dennison coming down to the campus to kind of ask us what what are we what are we going to do? Um, 
I, I think George was concerned uh, mm -hmm. about our future. Sheila had just come on as the new chancellor, and uh, it was a time of you know opportunity for change. And uh, so and, and we started moving forward, and we got these liberal arts degree programs going through this backdoor, you know, BLS degree. Sure. And uh, and then we started actually, uh, you know, co-opting time by I can remember courses that had been scheduled in a Monday, Wednesday, Friday format with a separated lab. We instead went to a Tuesday, Thursday format where the lecture and lab were integrated into a uh, two, three-hour block. So a longer form block of time. Yes. So it's a little bit of a, a hybrid yeah. deal there. Yeah. So we kind of played with it for a while. Yep. And then, you know, others saw, well, that that looks good, you know, and, and they were like, well, I, you know, I'm going to try that. Sure. And, okay. Uh, so I think there was some by example kinds of things that went on. And we uh, took uh, the provost and uh, a colleague of mine, Sheila Roberts, uh, and I went down to uh, uh, Colorado College, and mm -hmm. we did a fact-finding mission, and we wrote a report on the feasibility of Western moving to the block. This was all, you know, supported by Sheila Stearns, and uh, uh, we uh, – uh, got some money through the research group uh, in the UM system to go yep. down there. And so we wrote this extensive report. Um, we were convinced by our experience down there that this was not something that was just for rich kids, uh, that this would work for Western yeah, student population. it could be population. built in an accessible model. That's right. And so that money wasn't the issue mm -hmm. uh, with this. It was uh, – it was the will of the faculty to engage differently with the with the students, and I don't know. We just had a really great faculty uh, who were engaged and willing to try something different. We, yeah. I can remember, we conducted a uh, we can, we conducted a poll at one point, um, and uh, you know the question was asked: Will you be willing to consider going to the block system? And uh, we had about 84% of the faculty willing wow. to do that. Okay. Um, and I haven't seen, you know, that many people vote in favor of their raise. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is, is the faculty part of the is – it, is it unionized? Yeah, we're okay. unionized and we have, a, we have a faculty senate. Okay. Um, we didn't have a senate at the time. Um, and we had – you know, we had false starts. Uh, we we got very close to it. We had a very bad day. We still refer to it as Black Tuesday mm -hmm. um, when, uh, you know, the community kind of came down on us. The Dillon community came down on us and, you know, just really put the gauntlet down. That, that Yeah, before we started recording, we were talking about the mm -hmm. community dynamics. Yes. And, and so in a, in a town like Dillon where the, the, the borders between the university and the community are not – yeah. So defined, like how is that? How I mean, culturally, these changes in a conservative environment. I mean, how is that? What's that playing out like? That's you know, small community with a university that they'd had for a hundred years. Yeah. And uh, uh, honestly, I completely understand that they believe that their commitment to that institution was greater than mine. Mm -hmm. um, that Well, uh, you're a newcomer. I'm a newcomer. And as a faculty member, I'm likely to go away. And that was what they had, you know, 26 years later, I'm yeah. still there. But right. uh, Whether they yeah. like it or not. <laughs> Whether they like it or not. And I think they do. Uh, I, I hope they do. 
but it, you know, I understand completely the thinking, and uh, I think they viewed themselves as uh, it, it was their job to protect the institution. Mm-hmm. It's admirable. Yeah, it's absolutely. admirable that people in the community are that invested. Actually, I mean, I didn't like it uh, because it was a, a barrier to change. But I completely admire it. Um, that That's tough, though. Like, there's this notion of I need to protect the institution, but sometimes that can get in the way of seeing that there's a need for a change. Of course, right? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, uh, it, it's being convinced that the business model is working. Yeah, and uh, it's like, well, no, it's not working, and uh, the numbers bear that out. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, this was not. You know, I think you know. Yeah, in all honesty, it, we probably had been had we been thriving uh, in terms of numbers and and economically sure. and so on. Uh, this maybe wouldn't have happened. Yeah, uh, it's certainly harder to create that impetus. Yes, for for transformative yes, change. Absolutely, I do believe that many of my faculty colleagues actually really there. You know, there was Deweyism. Uh, in higher ed, uh, you know, the constructivism and and uh, so on, and, and amongst our education, my ed- my education colleagues was deeply rooted in the Western philosophy, mm-hmm. and uh, so there was a propensity towards this notion of experiential learning, okay, of authentic practice. Yeah. So there was strong philosophical support, really, for it, and the number of faculty that were opposed were pretty minimal, and. Uh, so that was to our benefit in that there was a philosophical interest there was in buy-in. it. And I think that, you know, I, I one of the things I always like to mention is I've had a colleague come to me uh, since. You know, we're now well past it. We adopted this in 2005 campus-wide. So we've been on it for, um, you know, close to Almost 15 uh, years. 15 yeah. years. Yeah. And uh, I had a colleague come up to me here recently who was, you know, we were all in this together. It was, it was a feeling of being galvanized together in a way that I, I'm convinced I will never experience again yeah. in higher education. And uh, she came up to me and she said, I miss those days so much. She said it, there was a, it was such a time of possibility and excitement uh, that we were doing something new that nobody had ever done before. And it was creative. And, and I think that that's at the heart uh, ultimately, of what was good about what we did, uh, you know, for a long time, I spent my time shilling for my institution. Right, that mm-hmm. you know, we're on the block, and we're the only ones doing it, and here's the results. And yeah, yeah. Here are the numbers, and so on. But at a deeper level, um, I will retire most proud that we had this moment uh, where we were galvanized as academics together with a mission to change the way in which we interacted with students um, and to not be deterred by uh, the many, uh, you know, institutional forces that resist change. And uh, and we pulled it off. Um, You know, we 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 refused to be defeated and ultimately what happened is uh that really 
pulled it off for us is uh, my my spouse, uh, Annalise Ripley, is the dean of outreach and research. Okay. And uh, she had said, you know, uh, I have to go to a trio meeting in, in uh, Washington, D.C., and you should go along, you and Sheila Roberts, my colleague that helped, you know, my partner in crime on this, <laughs> many partners in crime, one of the many. Uh, partners in crime. And uh, she said, you and Sheila ought to go and talk to the people at the Department of Ed about a FIPSI grant, Fund for the Improvement of Post-Secondary Education. Okay. So we went there. And uh, I can remember going to the FIPSI office and talking to the guy that was the head of the program, telling him what we wanted to do. And he started laughing. And I said, what? And he said, this is the greatest idea I've ever heard. He said, you'll never pull this off. <laughs> it's George Dennison all over again, right? <laughs> and I said, why? And he said, well, the faculty will never do it. And I mm. said, I have the faculty. Yeah. I said, we, we have that 84% you know, faculty pull. So I said, I've got the faculty. And he said, he said well, the reviewers will never you know, support this. And he said, but I'll tell you what. He said, there's no rule. Reviewers for the grant. For the grant. Yep. So he said, uh, there's no rule that states that um, if, a, if a grant is externally reviewed poorly, that we can't review it as a team here at the Department of Ed. Interesting, yeah. He said that we so can do that. So he's telling you green light internally. So yeah. he told me, he said, I promise you that I will see that we look at it mm -hmm. no matter what happens to it during external review. Yep. So that's what we walked away from. You know, and long story short, there were a couple of misfires and some colleagues of mine and my spouse wrote that grant and uh, uh, they, it got funded. And uh, it paid for a pilot. So we brought in 75 undergraduate students uh, who were uh, just given this opportunity. They had already applied to Western, so we didn't go cherry pick them for this. Uh, they were they looked like our normal student population. Same number of working students, yep. same number yep. of student Representative athletes. Sample. Totally. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they just had this choice to do their gen eds one at a time in groups of 25. So we had these three groups of 25. And uh, so 75 students came in and uh, we taught the gen eds one at a time. Sure. And the grant paid for people to come in and replace those of us who were teaching okay. the Backfill. pilot. So you could immerse yourself professionally in this pilot. That's correct. Right. So okay. uh, there was a planning year, and my, my colleague Steve Mock was the head of the – he ran the grant. He was the grant uh -huh. administrator. And uh, so he did all the planning along with a, a staff member, Margo Heberling, and uh, they did a great job of setting it all up, and they got these students in. And, you know, uh, if anything, we did – you know, the faculty who taught in it were highly – you know, interested in teaching yeah. in it. So, uh, you know, you kind of had people who were, um, you know, approaching it very positively. Mm -hmm. So if there was any bias at all, that was it. And uh, it was wildly successful. Um, our retention of those students from year one to year two, and they remember, they had to go back off the block in year two. Okay. Right, because they were only there to do their gen eds yep. one at a time. Yep. That's what the grant paid for. 96% of them wow. came back for year two. That's amazing. I mean, we're situated, just for some context, I mean, we struggle to get 70% here at the University of Montana. Typical, right? Year one to year two. Mm -hmm. So that, I mean, that's a tremendous number. It was incredible. Uh, you know, we, 
Um, it and we really there was no beer in circus. Mm-hmm. You know, it was completely no, just, just yeah. an academic change, mm-hmm. and it had this profound impact. And our enrollments, you know, the campus enrollment skyrocketed. Graduation rates skyrocketed. Sure. Probably placements. Um, placements skyrocketed. Yep. Uh, the uh, um, uh, full-time students, uh, you know, the you you want to have people taking maximum FTE, right? Yep. You want so uh, that number skyrocketed because every class was uh, four credits. Yeah, so the had to be full enrollment. Yeah, yeah, so every student practically was taking 16 credits sure. per semester. The so, system just, you know, results in having this high FTE generation. Right. So the one thing that we haven't touched on is, I mean, you've mentioned some of the people, but what was the interface between faculty and administration yeah. at this stage? I, I always, uh, I think that they were cautious. They yeah. have to be. Um, whether it was, you know, starting with Sheila, uh, who you know, really was in the hardest part of it all, probably, you know, because it was the early phases of it yeah, and the, yeah. you know, the heat, the peak of the resistance uh, to it. And Sheila did not stop us. Um, it takes a lot of guts to be an administrator that does not stop an idea that is wildly unpopular in a community <laughs> that's small. Yeah. Um, so I've always given her a ton of credit um, for, you know, not only facilitating, but really more importantly, not stopping us. Yeah, that's a um, really interesting place for a leader to be in, mm-hmm. right? To to to, you're not necessarily she's not necessarily in a position where she's the champion for the idea. No, but she is doing what it takes to allow it to sustain it, it yes. to keep keep moving forward. Yeah, right. And it's a rare thing, I think, when you've got you know that kind of uh, you know. Uh, depth of buy-in amongst faculty for a, you know, basically changing fundamentally how they interact with students. You know, everything you know about teaching and learning, out the door, start over. Uh, That's a, a, you know, that's a remarkable thing to get faculty to buy into doing that in in a large percentage in an institution, Right, and then to have a um, a CEO who is willing to you know let it run and mm-hmm. see what happens. Uh, when Sheila left and uh, the new fellow came in, Steve Hulbert, uh, I can remember Steve coming to my office and saying, "This block thing, it's not happening." Interesting. <laughs> wow. Uh, he was like, "You know, I'm not touching this." Well, he spent a year. Uh, you know, going to Board of Regents meetings and realizing where Western was in the grand scheme of things. And he was back in my office within a year. Yeah. And uh, How do we make this happen? And he was like, tell me more about this yeah. block scheduling system. <laughs> so, and uh, so we went from there. And uh, he was the one that, you know, got us over the hump. Uh, and uh, I can remember the day it was approved at the Board of Regents meeting. And it was, uh, you know, I can remember George Dennison coming across the room, and I'm like, he's going to hug me. And uh, <laughs> sure enough, uh, you know, he, he was proud. Yeah. Um, you know, we stuck it out and pulled it off. Rightfully. Why in this whole process, I mean, you've, you've stayed in your lane, not in your lane, but you've stayed in the role of a faculty member. Was there ever a moment where you thought, I need to become an administrator to drive this sort of change? Like, what was that? That um, was, yeah, there, I, was there any conversation about that? No, uh, no. I I think you know we. I mean, 
I, all faculty feel sometimes that they're driving the bus from the back seat. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm, I or, know. Or perhaps they're not on the bus, but that's right, a different yeah, type exactly. of faculty. Exactly. <laughs> chasing the bus. Yeah. <laughs> or not chasing it. Uh, I'm certain that I said it more than once that I felt like, you know, we were in the back of the back seat of the bus trying to drive. Uh -huh. But uh, that's not fair to the administrative team uh, involved in all of this because uh, they – um, they did facilitate uh, a, a lot of this. Mm -hmm. um, our provost, Carl Ulrich, deserves a lot of credit that he never got uh, for facilitating a lot of this change. Uh, my spouse, Annalise Ripley, was a central player in it. And uh, our CEOs over the years yep. uh, were central to it as well. We, we're pretty thinly administrated at Western. So there weren't that many people to work with. And you know them not just as you know the person who's the administrator, but actually as a, you know a, a human being and a member of your community. Right, right. So uh, the interactions are a little different, and I I never presumed to you know see myself in some kind of administrative role, and uh, nor was I really interested in that. I was really more interested. I think I'm good at selling used cars, <laughs> and so uh, I was kind of the person who. You know, when a lot of people did the hard work of it, I was, you know, the person who, uh, you know, was good at convincing people. Sure. You know, uh, I think the provost in that video you were talking about had said, uh, the former provost, Carl Ulrich, had said multiple times that, you know, convincing people, and he mentioned me. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, well, for good or for bad, I think my talent is in you know, is in uh, sweet-talking people into ideas. And, uh, uh, but it couldn't have been a bad idea. I couldn't have talked people into doing something that was stupid and wasn't going to work. And so people saw that it was going to work and, and uh, uh, that it was going to take a lot of work. And it took a ton of work. And it took a ton of work on everybody's behalf, from mm -hmm. the physical plant, you know, people, you know, on oh yeah you know, everybody across it touches you know, every part of the institution every part of the institution so uh everyone but that also at the same time makes it powerful yes right because like you said before it was this galvanizing yeah. force it yeah. was you know you, you all planted a flag and everybody knew yeah in what direction yeah you were and running. as it as it went on and people saw it work uh people's um you know uh memories about the process by which we got there changed in a positive way. Sure. So you know, one of the examples I like to get give is uh, you know, I teach a class where at the end they do a mapping final and then I take them down to a local place for pizza uh, and they finish off their final and turn it in. And uh, the proprietor of that restaurant was somebody who was not real keen on the block and would – but would always talk to me about it, right? Yep. Um, and tell me why, you know, he was, didn't think it was a good idea. And so, I don't know, this was about five years we were into it. And uh, I was in my normal routine of having my class down at his joint for the lunch after they'd done their final. And uh, we're leaning up against the bar and, and uh, he said, I'm I'm sure glad that we did this. Mm. We, he was already, he was putting himself as part of the team. And I That's thought, really telling. we won the war. Yeah, um, absolutely. Because uh, when people think that, people think it's good enough that they want to take that kind of ownership yeah. in it, uh, even when they were opposed before, 
then it worked. Mm -hmm. I, I think more importantly, that's what it tells me is that it worked because they're hearing that, you know, he employs students. So he's hearing from those students yeah. that they yeah. like it mm -hmm. and that it works. And uh, uh, you kind of universally hear that, you know, from students. It, you're pretty hard pressed to find students who say negative things. Yeah. I mean, I have not heard my sample size is small, right? Mm -hmm. But like a graduate of your institution or Evergreen or Prescott say mm -hmm. anything negative about the block system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there's a variety of reasons. You know, uh, uh, the ability to focus on one thing at a time sure. is huge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's less I think stressful. it's more and more important in our world now, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, the reality is people are entering a workplace where they have to multitask, mm -hmm. but we all have to figure out ways to preserve time for deep work. Yes, and they are multitasking. It's just, you know, I always tell people, you know, they – in the real world, you don't multitask between the chemistry final and the English no. uh, paper you have to write. Yeah. And uh, so what's happening now, if I've got students out on the Clark Fork River uh, working, you know, on a project, uh, you know, with the um, uh, Clark Fork Coalition, well, they're multitasking. Mm -hmm. um, so as we're out there, uh, I might have a team that their specialty is doing the surveying. But, uh, you know, maybe somebody has to – I've got to have somebody jump in to, you know, help and do some task. And it's and they don't have that experience. Sure. And it's like, well, you're going to learn real quick. <laughs> uh, and that is, I think, very real world um, to where people have to adjust quickly to the environment they're in, be willing to step up to the plate and give it a try, uh, not fear failure. Mm -hmm. um, right to be willing to fail uh, and to be okay that they failed uh, and to let them know it's okay just keep doing it uh, you know you'll get it these guys will help you well and you have a structure that enables some of that too you have time yes um, that's the key the bell doesn't ring and, and they go home freedom or from scheduling that's yeah. the key yeah uh, it it really is I just think it's it's again it's it's rooted in our DNA. This is how humans learn. Mm -hmm. um, they uh, most efficiently. I'm not saying that pe the lecture is irrelevant or uh, doesn't have a purpose. It does, but um, I think that the most efficient way to learn is through experience. Uh, you know, I, one of the experiences that I had in this whole process, there was a local rancher who was a senator from a uh, state senator from Dillon who okay. was skeptical about going to the block uh, before this well before we got to it and uh, I had been asked to by the uh, chancellor at the time to give a talk about it at some public forum uh, and so I did and after it was over he came up to me and he said uh, he said you know um, I'm I think that this sounds pretty good to me. Hmm. And he said, but I'm hearing from my constituents that this is a bad idea. So what's going on here? And I looked at him and I said, Bill, I said, you didn't give your kids 15 weeks of fence mending lectures before you put some pins in their pocket <laughs> and a hammer in their hand and you put them out onto the ranch and fixed the fence. Yep, yep. And I said, while you're out there doing that skill development – 
you're talking to them about why it is that the cows are being rotated from here to here and why you're doing this and why you're doing that. And that's the merger of the theory and the practice, the merger of the theory and the skill. Um, and that is what we want to do with our students. And he immediately got it. Sure. You know, it was like, oh, well, that's totally logical. How had you rehearsed that? You know, no, that's just, a great pitch. That's a great analogy. No, it was just sort of came to, to you. you. know, that's oh. what I'm good at. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> Making stuff up. <laughs> so, well, no wonder you were at the center of this initiative. Uh, Rob, it's been awesome learning all about it. And thank Thanks you. for having me. Yeah, I mean, it, you're, you're, I have a little bit of an ulterior motive here, not necessarily pushing the block system no, no, on no, the University of, of Montana, but, but trying to help folks understand that change is possible in an institution. You know, we're built in some ways to not change, and there are reasons for that, but um, we're in a moment where I think we need to really take a close look at how we deliver education. Yeah, I think that, you know, we we faculty have got to uh, find a way to be uh, happy in our jobs again. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think, I mean, that's a bold statement. I know there's plenty of people happy in their jobs, but – uh, yeah, I mean, we should just stipulate, like, we've got really good jobs. And yes, we do. Generally, like, they're better than a lot of the other jobs Absolutely. out there. But I Absolutely. get I, your point is taken. Yeah, we, it's, a, it's a function of finding a way um, – initiatives like this are a way to resurrect passion and yeah. enthusiasm for being in higher ed. And uh, I love the way I teach right now. Uh, I love the fact that I have the ability to work um, as kind of intimately as I do with students as men- mentees, mm-hmm. right? And in a very direct way. I mean, uh, I play the guitar and I can't imagine, you know, how do you learn to play the guitar, you know, without playing the guitar and mentoring with somebody, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> and so in many ways to me, uh, that's what I enjoy about this system working with my students. And I just think that uh, – if there are ways to hybridize this uh, and use it, senior year experiences. I've always had a vision of a honors college that was, you know, targeted at, at uh, high potential at-risk kids, and you put them through their gen eds one class at a time. They're going to be successful. You're going to see retention rates go through the roof, and uh, that's a game changer, I think, for that student population. Mm-hmm. I was that student population, yeah. And I think it uh, there's way to hy- ways to hybridize this and make this work for, um, you know, for every institution. You don't have to have the whole institution go onto the block. There are ways to use the freedom from scheduling in 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 parts of the educational experience mm-hmm. and 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 enhance everybody's experience. Um, well, and that authentic, I love that phrase you brought to the conversation: authentic practice in the discipline. I mean, that's a powerful takeaway. Yeah, it's uh, kind of at the root of it, I think, to yeah. us. Uh, it's, that's, uh, we, we've made that our statement as a campus that that's what we do. Uh, and when we were trying to figure out, you know, how do we label all this, we said we're going to say this is authentic practice in the discipline. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, therefore, it encompasses every, every aspect of that. Um, you know, we've been 
there's there's been criticism that this is vocational, right? The, yeah, the, yeah, we didn't talk about that, but I can see that as being an obvious. It's not sort of, vocational, right? and not, not that vocational is negative. Uh, you know, nobody should consider vocational negative. But what this is is it's hybridization of uh, theory and practice. It mm-hmm. is uh, you're engaging in both at the same time. With enough time to let it percolate. Yes. Yeah. 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 And to empower students sure. in a way that is authentic. Uh, you know, the, if I empower them to just memorize and regurgitate information to fill in the Scantron form, uh, I haven't done much. Yeah. That doesn't have much shelf life. Uh-uh. Mm. <laughs> Well, Rob, I mean, we could go on all day. I want to be respectful of, of your time. Thanks so yeah. much for, oh, you for coming over here. And I, I, personally, I hope this is the beginning of conversation. Um, so fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it very much. Okay, really enjoyed that conversation with Rob, and I hope that you learned something from it. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums, Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, executive producer Stefan Borsum, and interns Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.